around the bush in any ways. Just to uh, introduce the book of Galatians, unlike um, most of Paul's letters, Galatians isn't written to Christians in a certain city, a specific city, but in a region. Uh, Hopefully you can see it up there, Galatia, up in the top uh, right-hand corner. Uh, Galatia is located in modern-day Turkey. Hopefully you can see there, so just uh, south there of Georgia and Armenia uh, in present-day Europe. The people who lived in this region were defined by their language and these people have an interesting history. Originally they came from Central and Western Europe and the name Galatia was derived from the name Gaul. We may have heard of the Gauls which we normally today associate with France. The language that they spoke wasn't Galatian, it was Celtic. And uh, the Celtic language still exists today in some parts of the United Kingdom. So these people were spread right across the region from the east right to the west. And some scholars think that it was these connections that they had Uh, right across Europe, actually facilitated the spread of the gospel uh, in the first century uh, so that Christianity actually reached the British Isles within the first century of Christianity, possibly due to a lot of these connections the Galatians had. Now, as we can see on this map, uh, Paul visited the region of Galatia on all three of his journeys that are described in the book of Acts. And it was a region where the gospel very quickly took root and began to spread very quickly. Uh, It was the place where Paul and his companions began to face strong opposition from the Jews. But it was also where a large number of Gentiles heard the gospel and believed. Now this letter is probably one of the earliest of Paul's letters that we have, probably written around 48, so uh, only 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, It was written sometime between his first visit and his second visit to the region. So it was written at a time when this tension between the Jews and the Gentiles was high uh, and the Jewish Christians were still struggling to come to terms with the fact that all of these non-Jews, Gentiles, were believing the gospel and coming into the church. They couldn't quite comprehend how a Gentile could believe in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. So as we'll see later in this letter, the, the other gospel that the Galatians were faced with was a demand from the Jews that the Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised and to follow the laws of the Old Testament if they were to be considered true Christians. So the key message then of Galatians is we are set free from the demands of the law. 
the law which no one, whether they're Jew or Gentile, could ever keep perfectly. We're set free from those demands and we are given liberty in Christ. Liberty not just to go and do whatever we want and go out into the world and indulge in sin, but liberty to joyfully obey God as we have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Now it's good for us to know that Galatians was written early on in uh, Paul's ministry and that it preceded two other visits by Paul to the churches in Galatia because it shows us a few things. Firstly, we see that Paul's ministry was one that was deeply personal. He was genuinely concerned about the spiritual welfare of the people that he's writing to in his letter. He wasn't a church planter or an entrepreneur or a leader of a movement. He was a person who desired to see other people come to the joy of knowing God the Father through Jesus Christ. So he clearly stayed in touch with them. He knew what was happening while he was away and he was willing to spend time and money because to buy a parchment and write a letter and then send it off with a courier wasn't a cheap exercise in those days, but he was willing to invest that time and money to deal with these people whom he loved. Gospel ministry isn't about starting churches or growing churches, but about calling people into the kingdom of God. Secondly, the the fact that it was written so early highlights for us the, the urgency, the importance of holding firm to the truth of the gospel of grace. Paul couldn't wait until he made his next trip to Galatia. This was an issue that had to be dealt with immediately because what was at stake was the salvation of people and ultimately the glory of God. There there aren't many things more important and urgent for the church just as much today as it was then. The gospel of the grace of God. Paul describes it in Philippians 1.7 as the defence and confirmation of the gospel. Paul was willing to even go to prison and be killed for the gospel. In obedience to Jesus' call, that was not just on him but on us as well. The third thing it shows us is that we can actually have a confidence in Jesus' faithfulness to his church. Not only in the fact that he led Paul to write this letter, but that we know that the message of this letter was heard and was effective. We're told that on his second journey, as they went on their way through the cities, this is the cities of Galatia, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. These are the churches who had read 
the letter to the Galatians before this. And then in Paul's third journey, after spending some time there, he, that's in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, is a solemn warning to us about the dangers of forsaking the gospel and turning instead to other false gospels. But it's also there as an encouragement to see that Jesus is always building his church and he'll bring his church through times of difficulty and hardship and discipline to the goal that he has for her. His goal is that we be presented to him in splendour without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we might be holy and without blemish. That's Jesus' goal for his church and he will make sure that that is what happens. Now, two weeks ago, I asked the question, what is the gospel? And at that time we were going through Isaiah and we saw in Isaiah 52.7 that the gospel in that setting, the message brought to Jerusalem over the mountains by people with beautiful feet, it was the announcement, your God reigns. And then we saw that same message proclaimed by Jesus when he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So the kingdom of God has come in Jesus and so today the heart of the gospel message that we proclaim is summed up in the phrase, Jesus is Lord. We saw that the gospel is not about us, it's about Jesus and the fact that Jesus has brought the reign of God to bear on this world. There are a number of places in the New Testament where there are short summaries of the content of this gospel that your God reigns. The passages that flesh out in in a short paragraph uh, what these words, Jesus is Lord, actually mean. And our reading, Galatians uh, 1, 3 to 5, is one of those. So we're just going to work our way through this paragraph this morning to see what this gospel is that we have that is summed up in these words Jesus is Lord. Firstly what we see is what makes the gospel not just a a momentous world changing announcement but a good announcement, good news for anyone who hears it and receives it and embraces it. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now we might easily skip over these words because technically they're a standard greeting. Paul uses these words at the start of every one of his letters. So it's sometimes been called the Pauline greeting. By saying grace and peace though, what Paul is doing is he's combining the standard Greek greeting grace and the Hebrew greeting peace. So if you were speaking to a Greek person in the world at that time, you would, when you see them, you would say, 
grace. Grace to you. Just like we might say, hello, or how are you? And if you were greeting a Jew, you would say in Hebrew, shalom, which means peace. Or if you were speaking Greek, you would say the Greek word for peace. So Paul is combining the two here. But for Paul, this is a greeting that's full of significance. He never says just grace and peace to you. He always connects it with the work of the Father and the Son. See how it's not grace and peace from Paul to the Galatians. It's grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father and the Son. It's not really Paul's greeting. It's a greeting from God himself to them. Paul's simply the messenger. That's why he introduces himself as, as an apostle, as one who is sent. He's not sent by human beings or with human authority, but he's sent by the Father and the Son and he has their authority to say grace and peace to you. That's the sweetest thing that human ears could ever hear. The voice of God himself speaking to us, saying grace and peace to you. As I said, Jesus is Lord, is the objective truth of the gospel. It's true regardless of whether someone believes it or not. But grace and peace to you, that's the personal truth of the gospel. It's known only by the one who receives by faith and by the enabling of the Spirit what the Father has done for us in Jesus Christ. Without that faith, the gospel actually becomes bad news for us because if we reject Jesus as Lord, we're rejecting the one who has been appointed as judge of the living and the dead, the one before whom we will stand on the day of judgment. To know that Jesus is Lord without having received grace and peace is a terrifying thing. It's grace and peace that turns terror into joy. So the next phrase, we see the truth of Jesus as Lord. It's grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this three-word title is the most comprehensive term that's used to refer to Jesus in the New Testament. It's the most common phrase that's used to refer to him. Sometimes we read simply Jesus, sometimes Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, sometimes the Lord Jesus, but this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Paul's greeting, grace and peace, it brings together both the fulfilment of the Old Testament promises for the Jews the Christ, and the present universality of Jesus' reign for all peoples. Jesus is the personal name of the historical man Jesus of Nazareth, but Lord and Christ on either side of that name, they're not names, they are titles. Greek, uh, the Greek word Christ is the Greek for Messiah, the promised son of David. Isaiah's 
suffering servant, Daniel's son of man. So to say Jesus Christ is to say Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfilment of the Lord's promise to his people, the Jews, beginning with Abraham. Lord has a number of connotations, not least the fact that God himself was called the Lord by the Jews whenever they came across God's personal name in the scriptures. But Lord was also the title given to Caesar, the emperor. Caesar is Lord was the confession that anyone needed to make if they wanted to become a citizen of Rome. It was a confession that not only said that Caesar was the greatest king on earth, but that he was essentially God in the flesh. So to confess Jesus is Lord is also to say Caesar is not Lord because there can only be one who is truly the supreme ruler of all. So in this phrase we see Jesus the man with a designation on his right as the promised Jewish Messiah and on his left as the true ruler of all the kingdoms of the world. It's to say our God reigns in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know grace and peace. Why? Because we've been brought into This kingdom, the kingdom of the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace aren't substances that God dispenses from a distance. They are words that describe the actual actions of God himself, of the Father who comes to us, who gathers us in and brings us into the kingdom of his Son. And the next phrase tells us how he has done that. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. The kingdom of God that broke in when Jesus appeared on the scene wasn't what people expected. For them, Lord and Christ should have meant that he would march into Jerusalem, throw out the Romans, overturn Caesar's power and set up his own political and military kingdom so that things would look like the golden age, back when David and Solomon were king a thousand years ago. But Jesus exercised his kingly authority not by lording it over people, but by coming in humble obedience, by laying down his life for us at the cross. He was the servant king, the greatly exalted one who descended into betrayal and suffering and death to redeem us from slavery to sin. Jesus' humility wasn't a contradiction of his authority. It was the greatest expression of it. In the Gospels, the crucifixion of Jesus is presented not as the low point, but as the high point of Jesus' ministry. The cross is his throne. His sufferings are his anointing as the Messiah. So the Roman soldiers didn't realise the irony of their actions when they draped a purple robe over him 
when they put a staff in his hand and put the crown of thorns on his head. It was a a mock coronation ceremony. They're spitting on him. That was a parody of the anointing oil that would be put on a king when he's anointed. And they knelt before him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, not realising that in all of this mocking of him they were actually speaking the truth. As he hung on the cross, the sign above his head, which for other people, other crucified people, would have listed their crimes, for him it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And like a king on his throne, who would have had on his left and on his right uh, his two sons or the two most important men in his kingdom, he had a left-hand man and a right-hand man, but they were two criminals as Jesus hung there and was numbered with the transgressors. So the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls all people to repent and to believe and submit to him as Lord and Christ, does so as the Lamb who was slain. He sits at the right hand of the Father and he bears still in himself the scars of his self-sacrifice, the sacrifice of love for us whom he calls to submit. And so we see this lordship of Jesus. It continues to be emphasised in the next phrase. It's not only from our sins that Jesus saves us. He delivered, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. What that's saying to us is that salvation isn't just personal and individual. Salvation has to do with the transformation of the entire world. The arrival of the kingdom of God in Jesus means not only that I may come in and be a citizen of the kingdom and enjoy the personal benefits of that, it means that the kingdoms of this world are being overthrown and transformed and overruled by Jesus. This present evil age, that that phrase there, isn't so called to make us fearful of the evil in this age, but to remind us that this age is only temporary. It's the present state of the world, but it won't be the future state of the world. It's an age that is passing away. And when it passes away, so too will the evil that characterises it. Now Jesus delivers us from this present evil age, not by snatching us out of it. If that was the case, then anyone who became a Christian would go straight to heaven. He saves us from this present evil age by keeping us secure, keeping us in the palm of his hands as he enables us to stand firm through all of the tribulations and trials that come from living in this world. He's given us his Holy Spirit as the deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And the Spirit gives us assurance that we belong to Jesus, that we belong to the Father 
as we live in faith, hope and love and as we know ourselves to be as Philippians 2 describes us, blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. So we can know that our salvation is real and secure as we look forward to the day of Jesus appearing. As Peter puts it so beautifully, we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What's this prophetic word that we have confirmed? Well, it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Finally, we see in the next phrase, as we saw at the beginning, the gospel is ultimately not about us, but it's about God about the glory of God the Father. It's according to the will of God our our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the goal of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that when finally all of God's enemies have been put under Jesus' feet as the conquering Lord, he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. Not meaning Jesus will be diminished in any way in his power, but that he, as the Son of Man, on behalf of all whom he's redeemed and who are reigning with him in the new heavens and the new earth will fulfil the goal for which humanity has been created, to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. That'll be the day when we see the fullest answer to our prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whenever we pray that prayer, we must do so with our eyes on this ultimate goal. So what a magnificent gospel we have. How imperative, how vital it is for us to know it, to be able to to speak it, to explain it and to defend it from being distorted or watered down and to have it so capture our hearts and minds and consciences that it transforms our speaking and our living and our loving. That's why we need the gospel to be proclaimed to us as often as possible. Every week from the pulpit, every day as we open our Bibles, we must remind ourselves of it every morning when we wake up and every evening as we go to bed. The Gospel is not something that we ever move on from or go deeper into other more practical things because there's nothing more practical than the Gospel. In it, God makes himself known to us. So uh, John Piper put it in the title of one of his books, God is the Gospel. It's the fullest, the clearest revelation of his heart, this side of when we'll finally see him face to face. 
And it's the most practical of all messages. All the commands of Scripture are just empty legalism if they're not the outflowing of the transforming power of the Gospel. Without grace and peace, without the grace and peace that we can know only from Jesus Christ and all the how-tos we might try to pursue, they're just vain attempts at self-help. But if we do know grace and peace from God, then as Peter says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us these precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. His divine power, how, in the gospel has given us all things that we need to live lives of godliness. Someone once told me that they'd changed churches because in the new church the sermons were more practical. But as I said, there is nothing more practical than the gospel. If we have the gospel, we have the framework for all of life. Or as we could call it, for the authentic life. Just a little plug there. So we can understand, this is the magnificent gospel, we can understand why Paul then speaks so strongly in these two statements. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It's almost inconceivable, almost beyond belief that someone who has been captured by the wonder of God's grace in Jesus could want to substitute it with something that's second best, with a system of works or legalism. In fact, anything that's less than salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus. Notice that he doesn't say you're deserting the gospel for another gospel and he doesn't say you're deserting him who called you for someone else who's calling you elsewhere. But you're deserting him who called you for a different gospel. God is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. We cannot change the gospel by adding to it or by subtracting to it or altering it and think that somehow we'll still have God if we've changed the gospel. If you give up on the gospel as first received, the gospel that's We've just seen very clearly stated in verses 3 to 5, we're giving up on Christ, no matter how much we claim to still follow and proclaim him. There will be many people who will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, we prophesied, we performed miracles in your name. To those people, Jesus will say, I never knew you, depart from me. So it's not only vital for us to believe the true gospel but also to preach the true gospel. So he says, I say to you, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now that's a warning to me and to Su Kyung 
and to anyone who stands in this pulpit to preach anything more or anything less than the true gospel is not acceptable. Paul uses this word, be a curse. It's the strongest word that he could, could use. And he presses the point because he says it twice. It means to be not just cut off from the church, but to be cut off from Christ, to be under God's judgment. Paul's echoing Jesus' words here when Jesus said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever curses one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Little one here is not, in this context, is not children. It's anyone who has become like a child in becoming one of Jesus' disciples. And sin here is not just an act of moral failure, but it's, it's the sin of unbelief. It's a rejection of the gospel of grace that's come in Jesus. So strong words from Paul. As we work our way through this letter, then, let's, let's prepare ourselves to be warned. But let's also prepare ourselves to be encouraged. Warned because of the danger in rejecting the true gospel. But encouraged to know that the love of Christ for us is so great that he gives us these warnings in his word. And more so, that he's actually enabled us to believe the gospel, the true gospel, and to know his grace and peace in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us such a clear and present word in the gospel of your Son. Thank you that in the gospel we see you. We see your great love and grace and mercy towards in Jesus Christ, in his death and his resurrection. In the gospel we see all of your promises coming to fulfilment and given to us. In the gospel, Father, we see the great hope that you give to us, the hope that you have sealed in us by the gift of your Holy Spirit, that one day we will see you face to face, that grace and peace for us at that time will no longer be something that we battle to know and to believe and to live, but something that we'll live in the reality of as we see you in person. Father, as we work our way through this book of Galatians, we ask that you'll give us the grace that we need to heed your warnings and to repent when we need to, but also that you will encourage our hearts and build us up and give us joy in the hope that we have in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn uh, as we praise the Father for the wonder of his love.